From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, the only podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. Joining me today is Mr. Bradley Easterbrooks, uh, an ensign in the uh, U.S. uh, Navy Reserve, a chaplain candidate, and uh, currently of, in seminary uh, uh, studying to be a priest. Uh, Bradley, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Taylor. Glad to be here. And I neglected to say that uh, in addition to uh, being a, one of our co-sponsored seminarians, you are a lawyer. That's correct. And uh, that's a fairly unusual background for one of our, uh, our seminarians. So if you could uh, explain to me how... Uh, did you go from being a lawyer to uh, being a, a chaplain candidate and a seminarian? Be happy to. So I went to law school. I entered law school back in 2009, uh, which ended in 2012. And during law school, I had um, planned to enter the Navy JAG Corps. I always wanted to serve, especially after my grandfathers, who had both served during World War II, one of whom served in the Navy. And I was very interested in military service, so I considered and applied for the Navy JAG Corps and and entered the Navy JAG Corps in 2012. I did about four and a half years of active duty service, first serving in San Diego, where I'm actually from, and then serving in Yokosuka, Japan as a JAG. Um, most of that time I did criminal prosecution and defense work, not at the same time, but but uh, certainly uh, over the, the period, I had the opportunity to do a lot of various um, things as an attorney, uh, which in- involved prosecution of people who had committed crimes and then um, at one point defense of people who had committed crimes while in the military service. And, but during that time, I, I had a deepening faith um, in God and in Christ, uh, and I became open to the possibility that I might be called to the priesthood. This was not something that had been at the center of my um, my focus or on my horizon during early adulthood in my early 20s. But uh, during law school, I had, I had had what I might call a pretty strong reversion experience. I became a very intentional Catholic, someone who prayed more, went to Mass. And it, during that time, I found that my center was my faith so that everything else that I did at that point would be planned around, focused around my faith, that that was, that was who I was fundamentally. That acknowledgement of, of, of that you know, piece about who I was grew into just the, the possibility, the opening to the idea that maybe I'm, maybe I'm called to the priesthood, even though I happen to be an attorney, and I, you know, I was loving my my job as a JAG. I, I I went to work every day, happy to put on the uniform, really proud uh, to be serving, and uh, loving what I did. I, I loved to be in a court martial, and and you know, marshaling arguments uh, based in law and justice. But as I prayed more, and you know, I gave God that opening. God took it. And he, over time, used little details in my life, little events, to show me that perhaps he's calling me 
to be a priest. And, you know, that doesn't mean I, I cease to be who I was or cease to be a lawyer. It's just, it's a deepening of the understanding of who God wants me to be. So I connected, particularly during my time in Japan, which is sort of the second half of my um, my naval service, with a Navy chaplain and explained this to him. And we then ventured down a process by which I would discern the possibility of a call to the priesthood. And obviously that led me to this point today as a seminarian. So uh, what kinds of cases did you try as a JAG? Were these uh, felony cases, minor cases, or run the gamut? All of the above. And and as I became more experienced, I I took on more and more complex cases. Um, the Navy uh, was dealing with, especially at the time that I'd entered, a um, a period where a lot of people were coming forward with allegations um, of a sexual nature, uh, and these some of these allegations dated back many years. And so the Navy was having to process those cases. So one of the first things I did was I worked on a team that reviewed those types of of criminal cases to see um, what what can be done with these cases. Can there be an investigation, or I, is there an allegation of a criminal nature here? And so I I, I began with that. That that resulted in um, ultimately my my trying some of those cases. Um, additionally, you know there were cases involving um, drug related matter, uh, theft, and you know everything you can possibly think of, uh, but. You know what's interesting is is that um, you you couldn't predict the next case that would walk through the door, the factual pattern, um, you know that we call as lawyers a factual pattern. You couldn't make up the reality of these cases, and that was what was so fun about them and and so interesting about them is that um, just when you think you've seen it all, you know something occurs that then makes its way into a courtroom. And, and so then the attorneys are having to deal with, with, with those uh, factual incidents. Let's back up a little bit. Uh, tell me where you grew up. Where did you go to college? Where did you go to law school? So I, I grew up in a little suburb of uh, the San Diego County area called Carlsbad, which is just north. It's, in fact, if you, if you know Camp Pendleton, it's, it's about 15 minutes south of um, Camp Pendleton on the coast. And uh, I grew up, so I grew up there, and I went to Carlsbad High School, and then I went to Boston College after that, which is on the other side of the country, obviously. Good but Jesuit I, school. <laughs> it is a good Jesuit school. And, and you know, I went there because I wanted to do something different, something unique. Um, it had given me the opportunity to come, and I figured I'd try it out. And I, I ended up loving Boston College. And, you know, later I found out that Archbishop Brolio had, had also gone to Boston College uh, so we share that. What did you major in? I majored in political science and history. I was a double major. I was really interested in in government, in politics. Uh, I didn't really know why. I, I always thought I, I would probably serve in some capacity. At this point, military service was not at the forefront. But, uh, you know, I, I liked politics. It was interesting to me. And, and so um, I, I went to Boston College and I I did a number of, of internships and political internships and um, and found that this was a fit, at least at, at that time. Okay, so you graduate from Boston College. Uh, 
Did you go right to law school or was there an interval in there in between? No, there, there was actually an in-between. So after law, after, excuse me, after college, I, um, I had, um, I had, well, so let me back up a second. So I had a White House internship during college and, and some of the people I'd met during my White House internship ended up doing some consulting uh, afterwards and I followed them. So I went to the consulting firm um, where a number of those people had continued um, to work and I, I ended up um, working on the McCain campaign as a consultant and then doing some business consulting after that. So obviously McCain did not become president and I did some business work. And um, during all this time though, I had always planned to go to law school. So this, this period was only about two years when I, when I did some political work and then I also did some, some business consulting. And then I, I decided to continue on to law school, which was at Pepperdine University located in, in Malibu, just outside of Los Angeles. So Pepperdine University Law School, by this time you already thought you might want to be a JAG. That's right. Even when I was entering, I was, I was settling on the idea that perhaps my desire to serve, particularly in government, uh, could be fulfilled through the, the military service, that I could be both a lawyer and someone who's serving in uniform as a, as a JAG. And so that was on that was at the forefront of my mind, and, and I, I pursued that. The, the process is um, actually something like the chaplain candidacy for seminarians. Um, one doesn't just become a JAG. They have to go through an application process, and then while they're in law school, they're commissioned. And so I was commissioned as a, as a Navy JAG in the IRR, the inactive reserve, during law school uh, in anticipation of activating after I graduated law school and took the bar exam. Did you uh, take a number of special courses in military law, code of military justice? I, I actually, I did take a few courses. I took a course in national security law, which which focused on, you know, sort of the hot button issues at the time, which was involved drone targeting and, and the legal issues surrounding preemptive, preemptive strikes and, and those types of issues. Um, I also took some, some laws of war classes, um, one about war crimes, you know, there wasn't really a track at Pepperdine to just do, you know, focus on military law, but I was able to sort of max out, you know, all of the all of the possibilities there. And, you know, what's interesting is um, you don't necessarily put it together, but one of the most important courses that I took was, was constitutional criminal procedure. So the, the, the constitutional issues involving um, the rights of a, a defendant or the, the, the rights of the police or the government in certain situations. Um, but those courses actually really helped me um, as a Navy lawyer because of, of the number of issues that come up, especially when one's advising a commander on those issues or, or representing a military client. You know, the, the military client uh, puts on a uniform, swears to defend the Constitution, and that, those, that Constitution gives them certain rights. And so um, the defense lawyer also is ensuring that military members don't lose their constitutional rights just by entering the military service. And you say be, you became intentional about being a Catholic in law school. What was the nexus there besides praying to pass exams? <laughs> that's right. You know, and, and that's one of those things that the exams in law school, especially the first semester, you don't know what to expect because it's the first, in, first real education environment where the entire grade is based on one exam and it's competitive. There's a, there's a hard curve, which means that there's only a, a percentage of, of A's, B's, C's, you know, and so, so those were, 
high some some high stress exams. Um, but besides praying to pass, I I've always been interested in some of the more the deeper questions. You know, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Who are we? You know, what is what is the human person? And I in 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 law school with with the legal training that I was getting, you know, after I got the first couple of semesters of law school down, I wanted to examine those questions almost as an attorney. You know, who said the most interesting things in response to those questions? Who, what, what answers are the most compelling? And I, I sort of read my way into uh, some of the writings of John Paul, Saint John Paul II. Um, Pope Benedict was pope at the time, and some of his writings, and and then the Church Fathers. And you know, what was so interesting to me as I was reading this material was the way in which the answers to these questions that Christianity and Catholicism specifically gave were timeless and seemed fundamentally true that throughout history the the answers to those questions that people found to be true, fulfilling, and the most um, the most lasting, you know, the, the types the types of cultural um, truths that lasted from one civilization to the next, from one time period to the next, it was Christianity that was giving those answers. And they weren't changing. They might be developed, they might grow, you know, people might have a deeper understanding of an answer, but the questions themselves and the answer to those questions were lasting and and not just important to someone living in the, the you know the third fourth century or the thirteenth century, but you know presented to me, um, and it, not just an encounter with information, but an encounter with truth itself or truth, the person that Jesus Christ seemed to sum up all of the truth that history, cultural and, and culture and civilization had had discovered but still relied on the revelation to fulfill. So, you, you know, you have, you have what we would call perhaps, you know, natural truth that, that people can encounter through their day-to-day experiences. But then that's the key to it all. What fits it all together is the revelation of Jesus Christ as God. And, you know, it, it wasn't just me. It, it wasn't just me reading these things or th- coming, you know, to my own conclusions and, and sort of reasoning my way into... Uh, an intentional faith. It was that it seemed like God was had stepped into the breach and was guiding me through it, and and no longer was I the one guiding myself. What what I was reading, um, what I was praying about, was no longer based on you know necessarily what I thought was the best idea. But I f- I found a, a relationship um, with. And you know, I, I remember praying, um, praying about a certain passage. I'm wondering, you know, what does this mean I, I, uh, from the Bible? And I don't remember what that passage even was. And that's not even really what's important because um, what happened was I was I was praying about it one morning, and then I went to mass, and it happened to be the reading, and I had no idea that that was going to be the reading that day. You know, and that's something that 
it could be a coincidence, but what are the odds that that's the coincidence? Especially when the lectionary is a you know three-year lectionary. The possibilities were there, but those types of coincidences showed me that it wasn't just a one-way street. I had someone with whom I was communicating who was guiding me in. And you know, at some point, you know, I went over the threshold and then I never looked back. I knew this is where God was taking me, which was a life lived in faith in response to his love for us that I might share it with others. And so even though um, at that time I had no idea that God would eventually lead me into seminary. In fact, if you had told me that, I probably would have run. But, but you know, it, that's where it began, that, that there, was a, there was a God who was guiding me in and, and allowing me basically to discover myself, to discover who he had made me to be, um, so that he might guide me one day, perhaps, into something that, you know, he had planned for me, but it was beyond my wildest expectations. But why the military? That's a good question. Who gave me that idea? You know, I, I had always admired, always admired my grandfathers. But up until that point, I hadn't yet known that I would be serving. And um, during law school, it just became obvious. That's what fit me. Military service fit me. You know, and the idea of being a naval officer as a lawyer, you know, the doesn't make as much money. You know, the, the Navy JAG does not make as much money as, as someone at a, at a law firm. But for me, it just seemed obvious that that's, that's what fit me the best. And, you know, it's interesting is I probably never would have, or I can't discern, I probably, um, I can't imagine how God would have brought me to this point, but for the military service. There was something special about the military service that prepared me to be open to the idea of a vocation um, both as a priest and then as a as a chaplain. Do you see any contradiction between the message of the gospel, peace and love, and the mission of the military to wage war? You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, obviously the military, you know, the, the, the slogan we use in the Navy is warheads on foreheads. Uh, so that doesn't, at the first glance, that's, that's not a, uh, a very peaceful enterprise um, as it's initially presented to you. But the fact of the matter is, is that, um, is that justice sometimes requires its own defense, is that you can't have peace, um, or, you know, we, you know, we say this, peace is not the absence of violence, it's the presence of justice. And, you know, there's some truth in that. And that the shipping lanes have to remain open. Our borders have to remain protected. Our homes have to be protected so that we can have peace. And in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, and I'm paraphrasing right now because I don't have it in front of me, but um, Moses would go back to the Pharaoh over and over again and say to the Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship their God. Obviously, there was violence involved in the flight of the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, as they went through the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was, um, was decimated uh, by the waters. But the presence of peace in necessarily involves the freedoms to worship. It's not simply a political liberation. It's not simply the idea of there's no fighting, but everyone's sort of stuck in a stalemate. Peace involves the presence of 
justice, and and justice is the protection of our constitutional rights. And so the presence of the military, of the U.S. military, when done correctly, when properly, um, you know, when it's, when it's properly being used, is to ensure that the world has the space to have the freedom, you know, go through the Bill of Rights. The first right is the worship of Almighty God, and then through and through, so that we might have a just and peace society, peaceful society, which would not be possible but for the presence of the military. So, so that big mission, obviously, I think is completely consistent with the idea of peace, of justice, um, in a front, you know, in a more profound sense of the term. Very interesting and insightful answer. Thank you. So bring me bring me up to date now. Where are you in seminary? And what year are you? Where, what, what location are you in seminary? So I'm in seminary at the Pontifical North American College in Rome, which is a it's it's technically on Vatican property. Now I I didn't start there, so I started in San Diego because I'm I'm a diocese of San Diego seminarian, and so I did my pre-theology at the University of San Diego while living in um, the formation house that they, um, where they had me. And then at the completion of my pre-theology, they sent me to the Pontifical North American College in Rome, um, where I study at the Gregorian University. So um, one of the things about studying in Rome is you can choose the university, and we all live together, all the Americans do. All the American seminarians live together at the Pontifical North American College, which is called uh, colloquially the NAC. So if, if you've heard of the NAC, that's what it's called. It means it's it's an acronym for North American College. There's and, an acronym for everything nowadays, yes. right? <laughs> well, and, and if you come from the military, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to keep up. But um, And then we go out from our seminary to our universities. And I go to the Gregorian University, which was founded by the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola, actually. And so I've, I've continued my Jesuit ed- education through the Gregorian University in Rome. And I'm in third theology. Third year. So how many more before you're ordained? I will be ordained a deacon at the beginning of my fourth year and then a priest at the end of the fourth year. So it's, it's about a year and 10 months and some change away from my priestly ordination. So 2023, you should be ordained a priest. 2022, actually. 2022. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's not far off. Not far at all. It's right around the corner. It's amazing how fast this goes. People told me that that it would be very quick, and I, you know, looking down five, six years of seminary formation, I thought, well, that doesn't sound very quick, but ultimately it ended up going very fast. Well, let me ask you first about life in Rome. What is that like? Life in Rome is is wonderful. It's it's really hard to to explain or without being able to show because you look at Rome and Rome is basically a three thousand year old civilization and they never tore anything down. They just built into it. So many of the buildings are uh, sort of the composites of of different time periods, uh, different eras, uh, the Roman Imperial era, the the church's era, you know, and now you have sort of modern Rome that's that's built into it as well, and and everyone's sort of still living in what looks like uh, both ancient and modern civilization all all together. And um, obviously, there's there's great Italian food in Rome, and I have some of my 
favorite restaurants and there's great gelato in Rome and the most important part to me is that it's it's the city of the saints. Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome and so the Pope obviously has been in Rome since that time um, with, a, with a couple of interruptions to, you know, throughout history but um, the Pope's there so I, I get to see Pope Francis with some regularity you know not necessarily always in person but but he he gives his his weekly Angelus address he gives his weekly audience and and so uh, you know, the Pope's always just around the corner and the blessing to have that to you know to be able to pray you know knowing that the Pope is is just down the street is is a real blessing um, one of the other things that I love about Rome is is that so many saints and martyrs baptized with their blood, you know, this ground. And, and so one of the things I've had the opportunity to do while in Rome is, is give tours of what's called the St. Calixtus Catacombs. And the, the catacombs were this underground burial complex from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries AD, so about 1,700 years ago, where Christians would bury their dead. And one of the differences between pagan life and Christian life was that um, Christians wanted to bury as a sign of resurrection, that we will be bodily raised. And so they started this practice of burying the dead deep into the ground, which was actually a novel practice. Um, the, the, uh, the Roman practice was actually to, to bury above ground or to, to rest the body, perhaps cremated above ground. But, but the Christians started this burial process. And what that did is it preserved early Christianity. And so we were able to step into this sort of ancient Christian world where some of the ancient Christian art is on the walls. But importantly, uh, the, the saints and the martyrs from that period were preserved, and, and many of their bodies or their, uh, the relics of those bodies uh, still exist today in, in many of the churches of Rome. And so they've been, they've been removed from that area and taken to the basilica churches. And so as one walks the city of Rome, almost on every street corner, there's a church with a relic uh, or perhaps an, a tomb of a great saint within. Uh, and, and so that, that makes for, you know, wonderful time praying, that I can really spend my time visiting new churches, visiting new um, burial uh, sites of, of great saints and, and pray with them. In the last two or three minutes, we have... Uh... What are your courses like? Do you find your courses uh, bolster your faith? They challenge your faith? Both? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, they're wonderful. My, um, I, I would be remiss to not mention, they're in Italian. So when I arrived in, in Rome, I didn't speak any Italian, uh, really. I mean, I could say hello and goodbye, but that was about it. And I had the opportunity to study Italian prior to the, the commencement of my courses in Assisi, which is where St. Francis and St. Clair were from. And while I was in Assisi, I, I, I learned Italian as, as quick as possible, and then we began classes. But So the first thing that a, a, an ex seminarian often has to do is learn Italian at the same time they're going to class. But um, once I did that, and I, I you know you learn quickly when you have to, um, it became just a wonderful experience. You know, some of it is is encouraging and uplifting, and some of it is very challenging. You know, and I have to I have to really grapple with with certain material. But it's 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 a wonderful experience. You know, of the the universal church. I I share classes with Italians and 
Africans and Asians and Americans and Germans. And so we're in an international environment, in an international setting, in Rome, in the center of what is functionally the center of the Catholic Church. And, and we're getting to grapple with deep theology, and theology literally means the, the, the knowledge of God. And, and it's, we get to learn our faith um, while grappling with some of the most challenging theological questions of our day um, in a, an environment that you know, really, um, it, it really symbolizes the, the universality of Catholicism, the Catholicity of Catholicism, because it's such, uh, such a whole environment of the whole church being represented and gathered together uh, to study about the faith. I've been talking to Bradley Easterbrooks, Esquire, uh, attorney and co-sponsored seminarian, uh, chaplain candidate for the uh, U.S. Navy and uh, former lieutenant and JAG on active duty in the U.S. Navy, who's taken uh, time out to uh, become a Catholic priest. Um, uh, Bradley, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Taylor. Great to be here. The Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, the AMS, was established by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985. Her mission, to provide for the exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, the civilian workforce employed by the federal government beyond U.S. borders, and the families of these populations, making the AMS the church's only truly global archdiocese. Among pastoral services provided by the AMS under Archbishop Timothy Brolio, celebration of the sacraments, endorsement of chaplains, evangelization and religious education, sacramental record keeping, a thriving seminarian program, pastoral visitation by the bishops to military installations worldwide, and more. All told, 1.8 million Catholics all over the world depend on the AMS based in Washington, D.C., to meet their spiritual and sacramental needs. The AMS receives no government funding. She depends entirely on private gifts for survival.